0: Welcome to the Iconic Women by Icon Group podcast. In this podcast series, our talented women and guests share their inspiring stories of chasing opportunities, overcoming challenges, and living an iconic life. In today's episode, I chat with Sophie, Icon Group's Executive Manager of Research. Sophie has more than 20 years' experience in oncology clinical research and has a true passion for the continued evolution of medicine. Having worked in both public and private sectors across the UK and Australia, Sophie's intimate knowledge of clinical trials is an invaluable addition to the group's research capabilities and the continued improvement of access to clinical trials and the latest cancer medicines across the international network. Um, So welcome to our podcast, Sophie. It's a pleasure to meet you in person as well. Um, So we'll jump right into it today. So can you tell us a bit about your role here at ICON Group?
1: Yeah, so I am the executive manager for research. I have a global role and I'm responsible for our clinical trials programme. At the moment, that's extensively um, across Australia, but moment really quite heavily predominant in Queensland. And my role really is to develop and grow that program both here in Queensland but also uh, much more extensively across our Australian sites. And we're also looking into our opportunities outside of Australia. Mm -hmm. So we've got some um, great uh, opportunities coming up, I think, in Singapore, in uh, New Zealand, Um, but really just to grow our capabilities. So at the moment, we have about 250 clinical trials in phase one, two and three. And we conduct clinical trials in medical oncology, hematology and radiation oncology.
0: Mm-hmm. So I understand, you know, you're quite new to Icon. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, how you became part of Icon? So I joined the Icon team in May this year. So we're in the middle of lockdown
1: mm. um, in Melbourne. I'm, I'm uh, based in Melbourne. Um, for me, a big part of wanting to come to Icon was, was actually a lot of the presence that I saw happening on LinkedIn. Um, being completely honest, um, I was very impressed by Mark and how he really had a sense of where he wanted the group to go, but, but also a sense of really caring for his team. Mm. And that for me was in, is incredibly important in an organization. I think an organization that cares for its uh, employees um, is is gonna go a long way. And for me, that, that was one of the, the really big deciders. Um, but also ICON has a, an incredible presence in uh, medical oncology and hematology, which is predominantly my background. Mm. Uh, I was working previously in a role that was uh, quite heavily focused on radiation oncology um, and I really wanted to come back and do more medical oncology and haematology. And there are some great opportunities for us to expand here. Uh, Also really excited about the Slade and Epic Pharmacy here. To to have that kind of support from a pharmacy network for a clinical trials program is incredibly important. So I saw an opportunity to come in and work with an organization that was already incredibly well set up for clinical trials, but also a great opportunity to expand.
0: Yeah, great. So speaking of that background that you've had in radiation oncology, but also just oncology in general, can can you talk about your career? So from the very beginnings to where you are now today? So I'm... I do what I do,
1: both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer when I was 20, six months apart. Um, My mum was diagnosed with breast cancer and my dad was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Mm. Three younger sisters at the time, uh, much, much younger than me, and I took on a very significant caring role for my sisters while both my parents were unwell. Um, They were both diagnosed while I was in my second year at university doing a biology degree. So I've always wanted to do something to do with biology and science and my mum was actually recruited into a clinical trial for her treatment. And it was literally that moment that that was when I decided I wanted to do what I I now do. So I was able to finish my degree, go in and um, completed a PhD in haematology. And from there, I went back into the NHS and helped start up uh, the very first um, haematology clinical trials unit um, at a small NHS hospital back in the UK. And I was a clinical research assistant for a couple of years and then a clinical research coordinator for the haematology unit for about eight years. Um, And then I moved into an assistant manager's role in the NHS and then was uh, really lucky to secure a position as head of the clinical trials unit at Peter Mac in Melbourne. So myself and the family moved over um, initially we thought for 12 months we would just do something different for a year fell in love with Australia and we've never looked back
0: yeah great
1: so for me this is a a really exciting opportunity to take the skills I've learned both in the UK both in Australia first just in a, in the Melbourne role at Peter Mac uh, then I've worked with Genesis care for almost four years as an international role mm. and then coming into icon mm. a, into this global role so yeah
0: so a very personal journey for you as very well personal. just working in oncology So, you know, obviously you said that, you know, you wanted to do something in biology. Was that always the case, I guess, even when you were a very little girl? So I remember my very first biology
1: lesson in high school. Uh, So grade seven, I just started obviously back in the UK system. Um, And and I vividly remember my first biology lesson, um, studying the kidney of all things. And I was absolutely and completely hooked from my first lesson i just adored it. Mm. Um, Always have enjoyed anything to do with um, uh, the body or anything to do with with biology. But when I was really little, I wanted to be a horse riding instructor. Mm. (laughs) It wasn't until I got to high school that I decided I wanted to do biology. (laughs) I was the little girl. I'm actually the big girl that still loves ponies. Yeah. But yes, I was obsessed with ponies when I was younger. <laughs>
0: yeah. And how was that transition uh, from working in the UK to working in Australia? What are, the, what are some of the differences that you've seen there?
1: So the UK is much more heavily regulated. Mm-hmm. Australia, um, in, in some ways, it's a, I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's actually easier to conduct phase one clinical trials here in Australia. The TGA is catching up, though, from a regulatory perspective compared to the UK. Um, I think there's a much more streamlined approach to research in the UK. So all of the NHS hospitals work in a very streamlined way. But I don't think that's reflective of the market here in Australia, which is, I think, much more um, involvement by private uh, healthcare providers, which is obviously very different to the UK, where it's predominantly the NHS. So. There is a very strong clinical trials program here in Australia, um, and I would say it's uh, it, it closely rivals the UK's. So I think the only real difference in the UK is the streamlined, the fact that every NHS hospital works in the same way, and the, the processes for setting clinical trials up in the UK are exactly the same wherever you work. Mm. And I think the difference in Australia is we're still quite slow at, at a country level, around the different ethics committees and different governance processes. But once you've got a study set up and it's running, the processes are
0: almost identical. Mm, Yeah, right. So you've had such a varied experience uh, in clinical trials and oncology. What have been some of the defining moments of your career so far? I think for me, running
1: the uh, MHRA GCP inspection in the UK was a a very defining moment for me. I'd only just um, started in the assistant manager's role and we had anticipated our first regulatory inspection would be about two years away. And my role really was to come in and get the organization ready. Um, And six weeks after I started in the job, we got notification that we were gonna be inspected. Mm. Um, It's a really very um, routine part of the process now in the UK but every hospital had to go through their first one. And it's a very significant and a lot of work uh, and really important if you don't pass the inspection, it's very difficult for the hospitals to continue conducting research. So um, for me, learning how to ensure clinical trials are safe and compliant with all of the different regulations we have to follow. and We had eight weeks to prepare, three inspectors on site for a week. So I think I learned a huge amount about the regulatory side of clinical trials then. I think having the opportunity to become a GCP trainer was a big, significant turning point for me. So actually being able to teach people how to do, GCP is our basic quality standard we have in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Being able to, to learn how to teach that to other people has been invaluable and it's something I use weekly, still in part of my role now, that was back in 2011. Um, but I think also coming to Australia has been a real eye-opener for me and I've, I've loved the transition.
0: Mm, yeah, great. And so on a similar note, then, what has been some of the biggest challenges that you faced?
1: I think coming to Australia and learning the different way that things happen over here. As I said, once a study is open, the processes are really similar. But getting a study open over here is very different. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In the UK, we have a centralised ethics system. So it doesn't matter where you are the same, as soon as you submit a study for approval, um, it goes in through the same system. Over here in Australia, every single hospital has a different ethics um, uh, committee and every single hospital or, or any uh, institute that conducts research has a different governance system. And I think that's really challenging because you have to learn every time you start a job in a different organisation, you yeah. have to start again. So I'd say that's been really challenging. Um, and um, and I think learning the difference between the public and private as well has been a big learning for someone whose entire career was in the NHS, but i 've actually found that very liberating mm-hmm. um, for me, being able to conduct clinical trials in a private organization is um, it 's a very liberating experience. You can actually get a lot more done, and um, I think there's a very different approach it 's a very positive, very supportive, very encouraging approach to conduct research in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And I feel very passionately, it shouldn't matter whether you're being treated as a public or a private patient, you should still have access to clinical trials. Yeah.
0: yeah. So I guess what would be your elevator pitch to someone about clinical trials? Clinical trials is the medicines of tomorrow. Without clinical
1: trials, we don't have the advances. And I think if you look at some of the high profile media around melanoma, so Keytruda would be a great example. Of um, a disease that 20 years ago Mm. um, life expectancy was really poor to potentially you know almost becoming a curable disease and I think for me it's about keeping that it's about the fact that everything we do every day is contributing to the new medicines for tomorrow Mm. that is
0: how I would summarize clinical trials yeah without clinical trials we have no new medicines yeah yeah and then so since being an icon for you know since um, March. Um, what have you, you know, what have you taken away from, I guess, our clinical trials unit so far? So coming into this team, I was
1: incredibly impressed by the setup. It's a very, very strong team structure here. And um, your pharmacy support has is phenomenal. And I think that is probably quite underappreciated. Um, mm. uh, it, how important a pharmacy is um, and the pharmacy services here are, are second to none. The uh, the team here are very dedicated, very passionate about what they do, um, and being able to come in and lead a team like that that are already so dedicated to what they do has just been a privilege.
0: Mm, yeah, great. Um, I guess I wanted to go back a little bit. Then uh, it feels like to me that you've really you know found a love of clinical trials and a love of oncology. But you know, if you weren't doing this, what what other career path would you be doing?
1: I can't, I've been asked this question before, and Mm. I cannot imagine doing anything else. I think if I wasn't involved in clinical trials in a medical institution like this medical organization, Mm. um, I I think I'd be committed to teaching. I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy teaching other people how to run clinical trials. So that's probably a bit of a a get out there because it still involves clinical trials. But (laughs) I, I really enjoy the teaching aspect of what I do. Yeah. Um, So I think I would probably be in teaching some kind of medical teaching or or, or
0: teaching in that sort of area. Yeah. So obviously it's very important, I think, to have mentors throughout your career. So um, and like you're saying, teaching as well. So who has been some of the biggest influences in your career so far? I think for me, particularly in
1: Australia, um, as a, a a chair of cancer research. In fact, when I I first met her at Peter Mac, she was the uh, executive director of cancer nursing, and that was uh, Professor Mai Krishnasamy down at Peter Mac. She was somebody who, for me, is just iconic in terms of setting the standards for mentorship. The first thing I saw about Mai was that she just really cared for the people in her team. And I think any leader that cares for their people um, is setting a benchmark that is just so important for I think for for employees to enjoy what they do, but she's also incredibly smart, very very inspirational. She has the patience at the heart of everything that she does, and that is something that is it's. I've never seen quite that dedication um, in somebody. Uh, I remember she used to come down to our unit um, regularly to meet with the team and if there was somebody sort of having a bad day you know she would be incredibly kind and 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 really look out for them but she would always finish with if you think you're having a bad day you know a really bad day and she always used to say this with kindness she'd say do what i do just take a walk through the waiting room and then you'll realize that your day isn't as bad as mm. you think it is and i think she just always had that sense of care of, of what patients are going through and yeah, that constant wow. reminder that everything we do is about the patient. Mm. And to the to the person sitting in the chair opposite us or sitting in that chair having their treatment or going in to have their radiotherapy treatment. And I think she really helped me finalise that everything we
0: do is is really about the people that are out there and relying on us. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what is the one piece of advice that you would give to another, you know, aspiring woman out there?
1: That's funny. Yeah. I was actually t- having this discussion with my son the other day because he t- he's told me he wants to be um, he wants to work for NASA. Mm-hmm. He's only eleven, um, and he says, um, "How how will somebody like me, you know, work for NASA?" And I actually gave him the same piece of advice, which is which is I would give to anybody, but I think particularly for for women is to never. Never let anybody else define or dictate your career or your goals or your aspirations. And for me, that comes from when I was at high school, many years ago. I, I remember being told by our careers uh, careers advisor, I use that term very loosely, um, and I told him I wanted to work in science. Mm-hmm. And I said that I wanted to go to university and I wanted to, to study science. And he sort of looked at me with this sort of slightly... No, no, girls like you don't go to university. Just, and and I'll, I'll never forget, I can remember the, the room, I can goodness. remember his face, just yeah. being told that girls, girl, he was really saying girls don't go to university. He was, um, and I remember at that exact point of becoming even more determined that I was going to go to university and I was going to study science. So I think it can be very easy, still even today as a mm. woman, to have your career goals or your career aspirations so easily knocked aside by a throwaway comment like that. And I, and I worry how many people listen to comments mm. like that. And I think if you want something, you go and get it. And in fact, that's the exact same advice I gave to my 11-year-old son just, just this week. Yeah, and I think it should apply to everyone. But I, I do still think for women in science, I don't think we've fully broken that that gender gap. Mm. I think women in science, it's, it's still there. It's much better than it was 10, 15 years ago. But I think there are some incredible
0: women out there we can look up to now Mm. um, and make sure that if it's what you want to do, do it. Mm. Have you experienced that in your own career, like, you know, that moment where, you know, you feel like you are, you know, I guess you could say second, you know, as a woman or struggled as a woman? Absolutely, but particularly during my PhD,
1: I remember mm-hmm. going with my PhD supervisor from the UK to, pre- to present at the, at the ASH conference, the American Society of Haematology, my first poster presentation for my findings from uh, my PhD, and some very eminent professors came over to look at the poster, and one in particular had lots of questions about my my research. And my PhD supervisor, who was a very well-known haematology uh, professor, was with me. He was hugely supportive of women. He had three daughters, and he was very supportive of women in science. And this professor couldn't even look in my eyes to ask me a question. He had to ask every question to the my male supervisor. Um, and time after time, my professor would look to me and ask me the question. And even when I replied to him, he just could not comprehend that a woman was answering those questions and that was only 20 years ago
0: yeah
1: and I still think I still think there are perhaps an older generation that still can't comprehend that women can hold their own in science
0: yeah exactly so and then you know what would you say to those those people that have also experienced that how would you give them that confidence what advice would you give them stand your ground Mm. and,
1: and believe in yourself and I think in those situations it's not you it's them and, and I think that's what I had to keep telling myself, because th- there were other occasions. I think probably my favorite was turning up for a conference in the UK to present. Um, I'm walking into the, the 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 hotel room where everybody was eating the night before. Um, and a, a table of very eminent uh, medical oncologists, I was quite young, still a student at this stage of my PhD, actually called me over to the table to ask me if I could fetch them some more bread. Um, there was just an automatic assumption that I was there, you were the, yeah, that the, I was there to be the waitress, one, yeah. then, and um, and I was so floored. It, w- I remember immediately thinking, just turn around, walk out. This is awful. <laughs> They're not going to take you seriously. They, yeah. um, and I, something made me just stand my ground, and I sort of said, oh, I could, but I don't know where it is, um, and I'm really glad I did because sort of I watched the table and the sort of look of shocked expressions that went round, and one of them clearly felt so bad they actually invited me to sit down with them. <laughs> I ended up having a really good evening. But it would have been so easy for me at that point, mm. as a young student who still hadn't built up any confidence yeah. at all, to just walk around, just turn away and walk around and just say, I'm, I'm going, mm. and go back to my room. And it can be very intimidating. Mm. Um and I, there's been plenty of other occasions where that's happened, which is um, really sad. But I, I think it's a lot less now. I think there's a lot, lot more respect
0: for women in science yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sophia, I think that's great advice to stand your ground. Exactly what you're saying. Um, so we're just reaching the end now, where we have a little bit of fun with some quick fire five questions. Um, so number one is, what book are you reading at the moment? I wish I could tell you it was um, something highbrow,
1: but for me, um, I love reading. It's an escape for me. So I specifically read books that are nothing to do with what I do in my mm. day-to-day life. So I love a great escape. Um, and for me, I'm currently reading Marion Keyes, mm-hmm. who I love.
0: I'm currently mm. reading Rachel's Holiday. Oh, nice. <laughs> you always need that bit of escape. I love one, Don't you? Yeah. Uh, question two is name the top three iconic women that you'd have on a girls weekend with. So for me, there's
1: somebody at the moment who I think is breaking incredible moulds, and that's Kamala Harris in the US. Mm. Um, I think what she's going to do for women is going to be spectacular. Um, so um, I admire her tremendously, and I'm really excited to see what she achieves. Um, equally, Michelle Obama, I love her for being fearless. Um, whenever I think about um, that Stand Your Ground Um I always think her, I think of Michelle and I think she she's a huge advocate for women and mm. women's rights and I think she would be fantastic to spend a weekend away with but I also have a lot of respect for Julie Gillard and how she's held her own in a very very male dominated environment and I think she would be fabulous mm. to to hear, I'd love to hear the stories of how she's held her own. Yeah, in in that environment. So I think for me, those would be three incredible women. Yeah.
0: Quite a political theme going yeah. on there. <laughs> yeah, but again, very male-dominated environment yes. traditionally. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. where would where would that weekend be? Uh, in terms of my favourite place to go, yeah. it'd have to be Noosa. I love Noosa. <laughs> uh, question three is: If you had a spirit animal, what would it be and why? Horse always that goes back to my days of of having a pony having a pony (laughs) yeah but I actually I did
1: actually go on and end up owning horses which I will do again one day um oh they're just so free-spirited aren't they I think um uh, if if we've already got uh spirits
0: I think I'd already have a horse one but definitely (laughs) absolutely would be a horse hands down (laughs) our question four is what's your guilty pleasure sitting on the sofa on a Friday evening Uh, with avocado and chips
1: and if i'm really decadent um mint dark chocolate that would be my idea of a heavenly and guilty pleasure
0: yeah so speaking (laughs) of food then uh last question is what would your last meal be it's so traditionally English it would have to be fish and chips Mm. nice (laughs) just by the beach maybe by the beach definitely (laughs) perfect (laughs) oh well thank you so much for joining us Sophie it's been a real pleasure getting to know your career and and it's lovely to have you here at Icon thank you so much it's it's wonderful to be here thank you thank you